Welcome to Bite Size, a cybersecurity Q&A presented to you by Kroll & Mooring. Our goal is to take the complex world of government contract cybersecurity and break it down into bite-sized pieces. Every few weeks, we'll take one question that we frequently hear from our clients and give you a short, simple answer and explain why it matters. I'm Kate Growley, and I'm joined today by Alex Urbelis. He's fairly new to Kroll and joins us with a great deal of information security experience, importantly, both as a lawyer and a security practitioner, uh, notably most recently as the acting chief information security officer of the NFL. So Alex, thanks so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. So Alex, today we've pulled you on to talk about a really interesting rule that was published recently by the Bureau of Industry and Security within the Department of Commerce, and it's focused on all things cybersecurity technology, but with an export control angle. And we've been getting a lot of questions on it, so we wanted to bring you on to sort of talk us through the basics. So let's start out with the most basic question. What is this new BIS cyber rule? This is an interim final rule that the Bureau of Industry and Security under the Department of Commerce issued on October 21st. This rule is both new and unique in that it applies to intrusion and network surveillance software that's exported from the United States or is developed and exported from abroad with more than a minimal percentage of U.S. origin content. The point of the BIS cyber rule being that malicious actors, threat actors, et cetera, could abuse this type of software for espionage purposes, for disruptive reasons, and could facilitate authoritarian regimes to perpetrate human rights abuses. So could you explain intrusion and network surveillance software? That's what the cyber rule applies to? Sure. Let's start with intrusion software. The EAR defines intrusion software as something that is specifically created to avoid detection by monitoring tools or to defeat proactive countermeasures of a computer or network-capable device. A likely example of intrusion software would be something like Cobalt Strike. And you and I are likely too familiar with Cobalt Strike, but for the uninitiated, Cobalt Strike is a commercially available product that also happens to provide a command and control, also known as a C2 framework that facilitates network intrusions with both stealth and precision. It's designed for security researchers and pen testers, and the power of Cobalt Strike has made it a very popular tool that threat actors use to move throughout a network without detection, establish a foothold in a network, what we like to call persistence, and even to execute malicious code from a system's memory, leaving no trace of that code on a victim's system. For that latter reason, Cobalt Strike has become very popular with threat actors affecting ransomware events. And surveillance software, on the other hand, is more self-explanatory. Broadly speaking, surveillance software allows one to monitor what's happening on a network, whether that be the contents of communications, data transfers, file system activity, web browsing, that sort of thing. So, Alex, you're a founding member of the Technology Advisory Board of Human Rights First. Could you talk a little bit about the human rights angle to this rule? Absolutely. This rule comes on the heels of a great deal of media coverage of Citizen Labs' investigation into something known as the Pegasus software of the NSO group. According to the NSO group, they develop software that allows governments to investigate and prevent terrorist activities and other major crimes. It's a surveillance software that is covertly installed on a target's phone without the target's knowledge or consent. 
and allows the operator of the Pegasus software to do things like read text messages, collect passwords, track the location of a target, that sort of thing. This past summer, an Amnesty International investigation found that Pegasus software was being used to track human rights activists and many high-profile individuals. This signals that the NSO group's clients are very likely misusing this very powerful software. Uh, there are actually even lawsuits that claim that the Pegasus software, the Pegasus malware, as it's, as it's claimed, allowed the Saudi government to track and ultimately murder the Washington Post journalist, Jamal Khashoggi. But couldn't this rule ensnare a bunch of different types of software? That's a great point. The proposed rule does have some very specific carve-outs, like it will not reach software that's designed to provide basic updates or upgrades or patches. And rather amorphously, it also does not apply to software intended for vulnerability disclosure or cyber incident response. With regard to the latter, it will remain to be seen what falls into the incident response category because cyber incidents can really run the gamut when it comes to facts. This could be a very broad exception. And these days, depending upon whom you ask, incident response can have an active defense component. Think about this. What if intrusion software were exported to be able to track and compromise threat actors that were believed to be behind an incident? What sort of documentation for an incident would be required to justify reliance on this export license exceptions? Uh, we don't know the answers yet, but we will certainly be tracking developments on these issues. And what's the takeaway here? What's next? Software companies and those in the cybersecurity supply chain have really no choice now but to keep a watchful eye on this cyber rule. There are all sorts of wrinkles about what is within and without the rule. For instance, uh, technologies that are quote-unquote published or made available to the public without restriction are not within the BIS cyber rule. Disclosure of hitherto unknown vulnerabilities, also known as zero days, are not affected either. But there's no doubt that application of this rule will affect parties such as penetration testers, red teams, cybersecurity researchers, and others throughout the cybersecurity supply chain. I'm actually uh, really curious about how this may affect cybersecurity or general software VARs or value-added resellers who may trade in any number of wares, wares in the, in the sense of softwares, that could be classified as having intrusion or surveillance capabilities. And for overseas entities or overseas subsidiaries of U.S. entities, the application of this rule really needs to be carefully monitored because if it's too restrictive or too burdensome, license requirements may actually affect critical cybersecurity services, things like risk management or network monitoring. If interrupted, that could lead to cybersecurity blind spots, which could then lead to vulnerabilities, which could then lead to more incidents. All right. Thank you so much, Alex. That was incredibly insightful. We're sure that we'll have you on again, um, but appreciate you joining us this time around. And thank you all for joining Bite Size Q&A. We'll be back in your feed in a few weeks with a new question and a simple explanation. But in the meantime, you can always find more information on our website. And if you have any questions on today's episode or suggestions on what we should cover next, please do let us know. I can be reached at 202-624-2698. And Alex is at 212-895. Thank you. This has been Bite Size Q&A, a podcast brought to you by Kroll & Mooring. You can find more information at kroll.com slash cyberpodcast. 
subscribe on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you listen to podcasts. And if you enjoy our show, please leave us a review.